welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. Welcome to Madden America Veterans. Here today, we have Amanda Brill. Amanda is a former lieutenant in the United States Navy. During her six years in the U.S. Navy, Amanda served as a surface warfare officer on the USS Dubuque. She served as the U.S. Pacific Fleet's only female rescue swimmer and as the communications officer for the Explosive Ordnance Disposal Group 1 serving seven months in 2003 in Iraq and multiple deployments over the next five years. During and after the Navy, Amanda was an Ironman triathlete, professional marathon runner, where she completed 19 marathons around the world. Amanda also holds a bachelor's degree from Boston University, a master's in journalism from Columbia University, and a culinary arts degree from Le Cordon Bleu in Paris. Amanda, welcome, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. No, the pleasure's all ours. So, Um, we've been talking a lot about the issues related to, uh, mental health and service members and veterans, but really been looking at the role of medications, uh, and, and possibly harming and harming, uh, active duty service members and veterans after they've gotten out of the military. Um, but before we get into that, I'd really like to maybe just have you tell part of your story, uh, maybe how this story kind of started for you towards your path of treatment, and then uh, we'll go go into your experience in the U.S. Navy. Uh, Sure. Well, through the lens of of what we are both really interested in talking about, which is uh, this epidemic of people being over-prescribed medication, um, really what happened to me uh, was towards the beginning of my military service, I had a traumatic brain injury, and it was never treated as such. And so I had some typical problems to include the the vision and speech and some balance issues, I was still able to serve and serve um, quite well. I think anyone would attest to. It wasn't until after I left the military that my problems skyrocketed, really. And uh, the only explanation that I was given was that I had PTSD and I was lost because I had had the military and now I didn't. But the other factor was upon walking out that military door, I was told I had PTSD and medicated for it. And then, you know, this is a very typical story, but we don't hear it that much because it's a tough thing to escape from. Then told I had depression and anxiety and ADHD and medicated for all of these things. And what really amounted was a physical problem that could have been fixed turned into uh, that problem layered with a haze of medication that took a really long time. It was a situation that took a long time to fix. And that's why I choose to speak out and advocate because it wasn't an easy thing to overcome. So when when did you start, uh, when, when did your treatment begin or quote unquote treatment begin um, with the medications. You said, I think it was 2008, you might have mentioned. Yes. So when I left active duty, as I mentioned, I, I had some problems and they were physical complaints. Uh, they were uh, manifested uh, in the VA's eyes on my exit exam as you know, possible mental issues and headaches were called headaches. And um, it was shortly thereafter when I started going to the VA hospital that I was told I had, I definitely had PTSD and I did see a therapist for it, but the problem was that I didn't have a trauma. So there was no definitive trauma, but I had PTSD. And we all know that some of these symptoms overlap, the TBI PTSD overlap. 
However, uh, I started meds because I was, what did I know? I was desperate to feel better. And I knew that um, some of these, these problems I had were preventing me from, from fully living my life. At that point, there was no hopelessness. There was no, it wasn't as much a mental thing except for the hurdle of if I don't fix some of these issues, look, if I don't not crash my bike, I'm not going to continue racing. Like these sort of logistical things. But I did start medications in 2008. And from there, things didn't necessarily get better. They only got worse on the mental side. Um, And it wasn't until later when I was treated for the traumatic brain injury that those symptoms got better. But if you could only imagine this ticking time bomb of person who has a physical injury that hasn't yet been fixed. And then not just one or two, eventually four psychiatric meds thrown on top of it. Um, that, that is a deep abyss. <laughs> and I, I truly believe uh, the sort of situation not many people can come out of. I know you can't see my face right now, but I'm smiling because I did. But I'm also... I, I'm livid because a lot of people aren't as lucky as I am. And that's why, you know, I think we both agree that it's important to speak out and it's a mission to make sure this doesn't happen to other people. So you started the meds in 2008 and kind of walk us forward from your timeline. So at that time, you were a marathon runner, triathlete, former rescue swimmer in the U.S. Navy. <laughs> like right. all, all of these things, you sound like, like uh, a superhuman. Right. <laughs> Yeah, so th- things took a really drastic turn. And, you know, I, I had gone out of the military, and the reason I hadn't gone to law school was a, a simple issue of I couldn't converge my eyes to read. It wasn't, it, it wasn't anything bigger than that. And, and, you know, that was a physical injury. So what I did was I moved to Los Angeles, and I really started ramping up my athletics because it was like, okay, I have this time now. This is something I really love. And, you know, I I went to culinary school in Los Angeles, but concurrently I had started these meds and coupled with all of this athleticism, which is the person I always was, weird things started to happen. And, and the biggest thing, I am now six foot surgeries deep, but a year after starting those meds, I had, um, I had a, my first major foot issues that led to surgery. And none of these things were ever treated as connected in any way. The fact that I had gone on all these medications. Um, and to me, it was, I've been an athlete my whole life. Like this is a way that I make money and I'm losing this. Can somebody investigate why? Um, and, you know, foot issues and trying to run through them and still make a living uh, ran, uh, literally, no pun intended, but uh, trying to work around my foot injuries led to hip injuries. And so I was just becoming an orthopedic mess but not understanding why both of my feet, I used to have high arches, had collapsed. And, and you know, to, to most doctors, that was just a simple orthopedic, you're overdoing it type thing. Um, but looking back at the history, that was a sharp decline. Um, and the other thing that declined during uh, that period uh, after I started taking these medications was 
my attitude. And it wasn't that I, I would never say I was a fully depressed person, but it was a frustration with feeling like I couldn't think. And now my first brain injury was in 2003. So if I was going to feel like I couldn't think, I would have already had that um, be a pervasive part of my life. But brain fog or haze is how I've described it. And a desire to accomplish things, but not an understanding of how. Um, how. How do things work? How does the world work? So I ended up doing a lot of, you know, I went to culinary school, like a doer. I went to the LA Times and I worked in the food section. It was just, oh, I'm, I'm still going to find ways to try and race. And I got my side card and I would do commercials. And these are things that from the outside look like, oh my God, this person's just achieving left and right. But I'm very open when I say all of this was an adaptation to not feeling right. And this haze I was in that, mm. you know, it, it, it's, there's no doubt in my mind that this all got worse once I left active duty. And I know a lot of times we hear better in talk and it's, oh, I lost my sense of purpose and belonging. And I'm sure that's true for some people. That wasn't happening with me. It was something different. Um, mm. So yeah, that, I mean, physical issues were something I was accustomed to dealing with, uh, just being an athlete my whole life. And then, um, you know, I saw not being able to ride my bike without crashing it as a physical issue. I never, that was never mental for me, but it wasn't until, you know, after 2008, when I started taking these meds that I started having all of these these mental handicaps pop up, like what am I supposed to do next? Or um, an inability to conceptualize the future. It was more uh -huh. uh, living. I, I felt like a deer caught in the headlights a lot. But And this does sound like someone who's been traumatized. But again, I didn't have a trauma. This was a different... This was... Uh, it was almost like being lost, even though I was right there and there were people around me. I, I can relate to what, what you're saying here. The The thing that kind of just stuck out with what you just said about your foot injuries, The do you remember which type of medications you were on uh, when you first started, when, when, when the quote-unquote treatment first started in 2008? Yes. The initial cocktail, as I like to say, looked like Prozac, Lorazepam, is a word that is, I recently looked back through my, my medicine list and saw it, buspirone. Um, there was also an antibiotic uh, thrown on there that was like a low-level antibiotic for a long time. Um, and trazodone pops up here and there. And then the Ritalin might have started a little bit afterwards. And uh, we've discussed this a little bit, but I... I thought I was being assertive. If something wasn't making me feel better, I would go back into the VA hospital and say, let's try something else. Like instead of just, you know, take your medicine. Uh, of course, hindsight's twenty twenty. I wish it had been, take me off these damn meds. I feel worse. Um, and, and that I think is why we're talking right now because we don't want people to, to make that choice to either stay on meds or just switch me to something else. And um, again, I feel lucky mm -hmm. because I'm, I'm talking to you right now because that, that uppers, downers, benzo, and SSRI combination, and then you have someone who's in culinary school and I'm, I'm drinking wine with the food I'm learning to make. It's just, 
it, it could have been worse than it was. Uh, and that's not to say it was easy in any way. It sounds like you're lucky to be here and I'm, I'm glad and we're glad you're here. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Me too. <laughs> it's really, it's truly a, a, an achievement, um, just surviving it all. One of the things you mentioned when you were talking about your foot injuries and you said you're on Prozac, uh, that's an SSRI and, and I myself, when I was withdrawing from Zoloft and SSRI, started having severe arch pain, severe calf pain, severe thigh pain, uh, to the point where I could barely walk at certain times, uh, blew out my left arch, retore my right calf, all kinds of crazy issues that I couldn't make up. And it sounds like this is a, starting to be a common theme that I'm hearing with leg injuries, foot injuries, and SSRIs, at least from you and other anecdotally from other folks I've spoken with. Yeah. And I, I mean, I can't wait to, to find what's being done on this or looked at or damn it, do it myself. Because <laughs> this is your career. Like this is oh, I, I was a professional athlete. You were here. This isn't just, you're, you got a foot injury and now you can't go uh, for longer walks than you used to like to do. This is, you, this is, this is how you survived. Oh, absolutely. And I do, it's funny just even saying some of these things. I remember I was signed up to do a race in, in 20, 2009 or maybe it was 10, but it was definitely after, after sort of this downward turn where, um, you know, I was just lifting some weights in preparation and my, my quadricep tore away from where it attaches near my knee. Just all of this weird stuff that is so easy to be like, okay, Amanda's this hard charger. She's just in the gym and running herself ragged out there. And then you juxtapose that with what is the definition of someone who is depressed? Like you don't have much purpose. You don't have a reason. You don't have this like indomitable will um, in many cases. And it just didn't match. Okay, if this is who I am and you're telling me I'm running myself into the ground, you know, how does that match up with me being on all of these different drugs and you insisting um, that I have depression and, and PTSD and anxiety and ADHD? And the other thing I would like to raise here is who on all of these medications wouldn't be offered some actual therapy? I, I mean, if there was truly an underlying trauma, uh, and this is something I think about a lot now because I do have a therapist that I talk to and it's extremely helpful, mostly for me to grasp what has really happened here. But um, it, it hints at a bigger epidemic of people, veterans, particularly, uh, you know, the, the temporary band-aid is medication, but is you know, does anyone ever actually come in and, and fix the wound? And that is something that I'm, I'm very outspoken about whenever I have a chance to be, because uh, let's say I had had a trauma and I had PTSD. That's a treatable condition. I mean, I could have addressed a trauma, but nobody was offering me that. It was this medication, medication, only when I asked for a change, you know, change meant Prozac, okay, we're going to go to Wellbutrin. Now we're going to go to Wellbutrin extended release. Now we're going to go to Zoloft. And I mean, you name, you name it, I've been on it. And then um, 
you know, like even the mood stabilizers, I don't even know what category those fall into, but you know, when Ritalin does, didn't help my focus, it was, okay, now we try Adderall and now we try Adderall extended release. It was always lateral motion. It was never like a, a decisive move in one way or the other. I'm, I'm thinking back several years, probably 2015, maybe we, uh, so we've known each other off and on for years. Uh, I was at the VA in the Manhattan VA Medical Center, and I was sitting and they've got a big, large patient waiting area for, for you to pick up your pills. And uh, you check in, you put the, you, you hand the pharmacist your prescription list, and then you sit down and ultimately your name comes up on a screen. And I'm sitting there and I look up at the screen and I see a Barrel. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember thinking, well, that's not very good patient privacy. <laughs> one, one, two. Hey, Amanda's here. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and a fancy meeting you there. Yeah. And as I recall, were we both there to pick up medication? We sure were. And I, I remember thinking back, because we'd briefly talked about this before, which is we, you, you'd kind of given me your medication list a little bit. I hadn't volunteered mine as freely as you had. But <laughs> as, as I, was, I was leaving there, I remember thinking like, is this right? Like that, yeah. that we're just there to pick up the, this, these meds and we're both like sitting there, like just with, with the rest of them, rest of the other vets that are sitting there waiting for their meds and waiting for their name to come across the screen. Like, is, is, yeah. is this, is this treatment? And so I, I'd pose to you. So did it, it didn't sound like you were getting counseling when you were there. It sounded like no. you were just getting medication. So you didn't see a counselor. You weren't seeing counselors while you were there. Uh, no. So when I first got into the VA system in, in 2008, as I mentioned, uh, I had been diagnosed with PTSD. But the, when I did talk to someone about it, it, what was clear to me was that I didn't have a trauma, but it was this this search for what was your trauma? Let's go back to this deployment and talk about this. And you work with all men, what happened? And it was just this sort of, and they really honed in on this one incident that happened in, in the rescue swimmer capacity. And I mean, it was, I like to tell this story. It was yeah. disturbing to some other people because I had been sort of just like left in the middle of the ocean for a while. Yeah. Which, can you, you, know, can you tell big. that story? Oh, uh, sure, sure. Uh, it, I mean, I, it's kind of like a sea story. It's, you know, we were just running an evolution somewhere uh, in the South Pacific, closer to Australia. And there was an admiral on board and we were showing them, this admiral and his staff, the way that we do a rescue. And uh, essentially, you know, two rescue swimmers per ship. And of course, the captain wanted to show off, you know, the female rescue swimmer. We have this female rescue swimmer. This is exciting. Um, so, you know, we do this mock you know, sometimes you throw a chem light or a little balloon or this doll called Oscar into the water. But so long story short, it's dog and pony and they lower me into the water from the forecastle of the ship. But my tending line, there's usually um, a 300 yard line attached to the swimmer just in case like the worst happens and at least you can get pulled back in. It got stuck. So I'm dangling above the water. I know all these people are watching. 
And I remember looking up to the first lieutenant and just being like, because I, I have this cool harness that makes me look way more badass than I am. And, and inside is um, like a special knife for cutting parachute lines if you're saving someone who's stuck under a parachute. So I was like, first, you want me to cut the tending line because we're ruining this dog and pony show. And I know, you know, this is a big deal. Admiral's on board. So it was all fine. So I cut the tending line. So I plopped down into the water. And from there, the ship, instead of doing the typical evolution where it would come back around and pick me up, it just keeps going and disappears over the horizon. And I'm like, what the hell? Because trust me, the ocean is not blue. It is black. (laughs) And being in the middle of it alone and having sort of these huge waves rolling, but they're not like crashing white crest wave. Each wave is like the size of a football field. And it was the first time in my life that I experienced, um, it was almost like being on a psychedelic because they say, you know, the loss of ego. So realizing that I am literally nothing compared to not just like the world, the ocean, this tiny section of the ocean, to me, that was I almost appreciated this experience, but at the same time, I was like, what the hell? Like, why? And then all these thoughts went through my head, such as, I know a lot of people on the ship don't like me, but is, are they really going to leave me here? And it really was only one hour. And um, so, you know, like 45 minutes later, I see something coming up over the horizon. I'm like, okay, that has to be my ship. And then slowly but surely, it makes its way back over. And I noticed they didn't pick me up in the front uh, on the forecastle where they would haul me up and then I would fire bridge and also the admirals, like everybody would be able to see because there was a chance I was not going to be happy. So what they did was they sort of bounced me down the side of the ship and, you know, I'm I'm going because they come in real slow and all of this cruddy they call it brown water or gray water brown water would be like bathroom shower type water and then gray water would just be runoff from doing dishes or whatever but all this junk is coming down on my head and i'm bouncing down the side of the ship and they pull me into uh, a side hatch and they're just sort of like hey so you good and i just knew it like nobody asks you that after you do a normal evolution everybody knew something had gone wrong um, so it was kind of funny and it was, I mean, I was slightly enraged because I didn't get, like, there was no real apology or admission that something had gone wrong. I had to go talk to some of the other junior officers and find out that, yeah, there just had been uh, an issue with the conning officer had, had panicked and not known what to do. And, you know, the captain didn't want it to be a a thing in front of the admiral, but whatever. But it doesn't yeah, sound, it doesn't that. sound like you were traumatized. It sounds, it sounds for, if anything, it sounds like an unpleasant experience for you that most people are probably would have traumatized for me. Leave me out in the ocean for, for an hour. I know my experience <laughs> of being left in the sound by in the, uh, in the dark after a pontoon boat left me there for 15 minutes. I know I wouldn't have liked being in the middle of the ocean like you were, but it sounds like for you, it was just like, Hey, this is not fun. But, it wasn't okay. fun, but it was also kind of awesome. And how many times do you get to like truly understand that you are teeny tiny and the ocean is all powerful? And I mean, it was awe-inspiring, I guess is the right word. Hmm. And so, and I never had trouble telling this story 
But I think this particular therapist had a lot of trouble hearing the story. And so this sort of created a reason to latch onto it. And I'll tell you, I was very adamant that I don't think this is my trauma. And so they had challenged me to, you know, go out in the ocean and immerse yourself. And this is over the course of like three, three times that I met with this lady. And I was like, no, I've been going out into the ocean ever since that happened. I swim out into the ocean without flotation all the time. This isn't, this just isn't the thing. So it got dropped. But what didn't get dropped is the diagnosis and the medication I was taking. So it, it was, and it just sort of ceased to be a thing. And once we met that, that fateful day uh, in, I think it was 2015. 15, 15 16, uh, I can't remember. Yeah. It was by that point, because, you know, I had started at the LA, um, at the LA, West LA VA Hospital. And by then, you know, we met up at the New York Harbor and by the time I got there, I had become, the word non-compliant had been dropped um, to my face several times, but it, do, it did appear once in my record. And, um, you know, non-compliance is a word that they, I, I believe that this was like the female version of being assertive about her care because... I had been adamant that, you know, I had gotten into Columbia for journalism school and that's what brought me to New York. And I knew, and I'm, I'm really open about this and I, and it, it may or may not be wise, but I'm a fan of the truth. I got into Columbia. I mean, this is an Ivy league journalism master's degree because of my background. One um, of the, be- one of the best programs in the world. Yeah, it is. It is, you know, Pulitzer hall, no big deal. I was, I am an assertive person and I'm, I'm good at talking, but I knew that I had to, to summon every single bit of sanity that I had and, and claw my way through whatever brain fog haze I was going through in order to pull off that school. And when I got to New York and Columbia and this new VA system, I was insistent that I needed some help. but you know, you know, when you don't know what you need help with, it's hard to ask what you need. Um, so it does come across as like nothing has helped this. I haven't gotten better over all this time I've been on the meds. So they started to swing more towards the possible personality disorder um, realm of possibility and did offer me a dialectical behavior therapy group class which I did try, but I, I just knew that this, this wasn't what I needed. And the people in the class were sort of arguing with each other about whose service was more badass and all of this stuff. I'm just like, no, this isn't about me having to necessarily learn like breathing techniques or, or things like that. Like this is a matter of my body is falling apart. Something's wrong on a grand scale, and it's just not as simple as, girl, you're depressed, or you still have PTSD, or, you know, and it, but it was that combination of, you know, losing um, this feeling that I was losing my body, uh, mm-hmm. which I actually kind of was. Because at this point, you've had how, how many injuries? Well, I mean, as of today, uh, 2019, I've had 19 surgeries total. Some of those wow. were for my spine and stuff like that, and who knows what's related to what. Um, but that's a lot for any human being. And to have um, you know, the, these problems that I pervasive problems with my hands and my feet, especially started with my feet, 
But all of this, as I mentioned before, started after 2008. But yeah, once I got to the New York Harbor VA, it was it was more of the same. And that is when they suggested um, also the Lamotrigin, which is a mood stabilizer. And, you know, Klonopin is, I mean, it's a hell of a drug. I've researched it. And that is something that I had been told to take three times a day for years of my life. That is not normal. And it's not, I, I haven't talked to many people. I mean, you're one of the few that have been really open and um, you know, I'll lay it all out there. Like, holy crap, I was medicated heavily for over six years. And then I was medicated lightly, even after um, you know, I had the second injury, a brain injury, and I, I actually went to rehab for it. I was still being medicated and then I was being tapered off. But even during that, that taper down from the drugs, it was, that was awful as well. It's not like things suddenly made a turn for the better. So how many, how many years in all were you on a cocktail of sorts? I was finally off early this year, which is 2019. So we're looking at 11 years on drugs of some sort huh. and uh, seven of them being heavily medicated. And, you know, that's a tough thing to say when you've actually achieved quite a few things because to, I feel as though, and I'm sure other people have this issue, I feel to others it's, it couldn't have been that bad because look what you are able to accomplish. And to me, it's, I could have done so much better. And those are not easy things. And, and I'm not just talking about I could have achieved more vocationally, I could have done better by my friends and my family and my relationships. Um, and, and that's a lot to swallow. And that's not, that's not any small part of this, uh, even though I could smile and say, yay, I made it through. That's, it's a huge weight. You're talking about when you started getting treated for the TBI and you're sitting at home and there's kind of a dark spot there where it was kind of like an epiphany moment, but it was a dark spot. Can you, can you kind of talk to that for us? Yes. And I do think it's important to be open about this. It was after I knew that I had had these physical injuries to my head and I was working on, there was damage to my jaw and my neck and I had eye surgery and all these things. Um, And, you know, as far as I'm concerned, I'm chugging away, right? It's like, I should be feeling better. I'm fixing my vision and my balance and my speech issues. Uh, So you would expect that I understand my perceived medical issue and I'm working to fix it, that I might be feeling better. And I had come off several of the meds completely and I had just started to taper down the SSRI. Um, None of this, may I add, was uh, of the VA's idea. Uh, It was the hospital that was treating my brain injury was um, insistent and supportive of me coming off of these drugs. But yeah, so at this point, it was uh, Zoloft, Sertraline, codename Sertraline. <laughs> Zoloft, codename Sertraline. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I was on the max dose and it was really having no cognizance that uh, of how it might be affecting me, just thinking, okay, if I have all these things wrong with my brain, maybe keeping that in place was okay for the time being, but I completely eliminated any of the attention drugs and the clonopin 
Um, you know, they had suggested trazodone and lamotrigine. I think I, I dipped my toes into those yet again. Those are also drugs from the past. And I was like, no, I just don't feel comfortable. Like if I Google it um, and it says all this stuff that scares me, I'm not going to take it. But yeah, it was uh, coming down. It was the first time we had um, tapered down on the Zoloft. At any rate, to answer your question, I was at my apartment and I was thinking about you know, the fact that I had had to go on a managed Medicaid plan to address my medical issues because they weren't being addressed by the VA. I mean, really, the VA is a great place if you need drugs. <laughs> um, I was, you know, I was like, am I depressed because I'm on this managed Medicaid plan? I'm in my mid-30s. I'm not allowed to make more than X amount per month. I mean, I wasn't allowed to make money. And it was almost sort of like trying to rationalize. Maybe it's a blessing that my feet collapsed because I would want to be out running and sponsored and, and stuff like this. Um, but the, this, this low point that I had was this knowledge that it was it, meaning my situation, my state of mind, my inability to really plan anything and do anything was not sustainable. And so what I started to think about were, you know, if it gets to a point where I can't take it anymore, I should have a plan in place. And the plan should either be to make it look like an accident or make sure that it's not a situation where people feel bad for me. And that is to say, I started to have ideations about not being alive anymore because I saw it as um, a better choice than having no control and no future. Um, and it is awkward to talk about still. It's not like I've been throwing this around, but it's an absolutely true thing. And for someone who still had this ability to sort of, even when I was wearing casts and, and shit like that, I would get up and I would be on the floor doing sit-ups and you know, I still had motivations, but to just know that I didn't want my life to be this sort of this almost um, cave woman esque approach to okay, getting like holding on to little pieces of myself. And the thing that was really disturbing was this idea that wait a second, I found out about this this physical damage that is fixable. I am fixing it. I'm on the path. Why am I feeling worse? And I would say at that point, um, it was shortly thereafter that I uh, found a therapist, and this is outside of the VA, actually through Headstrong, that um, I was able to start talking to about some of these things. But I think the point here is, I think a Google search of me even would turn up nothing but like smiles and running and world travel and you know, maybe a couple things about TBI, but this is the reality. And I do believe, you know, that place that I've been before is where a lot of people might start taking next steps. It kind of uh, takes a wind out of you hearing all that, Amanda. Um, it really is. And I, I, I've been through that place before. Yeah. It doesn't make it any easier to talk about anytime you talk about it because it brings you right back to where you were and you're just, you're, you remember how dark it was. Oh, I do. 
I do. I know I had some people in my life that were you know, relatively supportive from what, what could be understood. And memory isn't the greatest thing, but because that was a very pertinent day, I even remember I was wearing jeans, threw myself down on the floor and I was, I had my fists clenched and I was yelling, why, why, why can't I figure this out? And I mean, it was, I, I almost can see the situation like someone else looking in, but I meant every word of it. Like, why wasn't anything getting better? And we have talked about this, given the ability to fix either your physical ailments or what's clouding your ability to think, I would take the latter eight days a week because without that ability to think clearly nothing makes sense in life. Fixing physical things was like going to kindergarten. You know, we're going in, I'm doing my little vision things. I'm saying my words, I'm doing my balance exercises. And my, my hope was, we, we, like speaking of a huge aha moment, I mean, in a negative way was addressing all this physical stuff, but not feeling better was, a huge blow to me. I assumed that shortly after starting all this brain rehab, everything would click. And I would just sort of like, I pulled over, I'm a race car driver and I'm getting my tires changed and I'm going to get right back on the track and, and pick up where I left off. Absolutely not the case. And a lot of that came about as you were withdrawing. You're, you're at that point working with the doctors outside of the VA and they were recommending that you do withdrawal of Soloft yes. at the time when you were having that. Well, and it's not as though it was made to sound like it was like, oh, we're going to, we have to be careful here. We're, we're doing a withdrawal. And I don't know if that right. was. Yeah. Because <laughs> at this point, like right. any now or the doctors, some doctors starting to be like, right. like this can be da- a dangerous time. Right. Exactly. Like, I can imagine exactly. It's kind of like, hey, let's start taking you down. Like, okay, let's do 50 milligram reductions. Okay. Exactly. Over the course of however long and well, a month or a couple weeks. Right. And you know, the funny thing is, funny meaning not funny, is when you sort of have this, you know, I was able to escape it by getting this uh, outside insurance and getting out of a system where every time they would open my record, they would see in flashed before their eyes, PTSD, depression, anxiety, ADHD, like that that had to have kind of sent some people in a direction, but talking to all, I mean, provide, like, I, I'm not going to lie that even to me sounds like, whoa, you're diagnosed with all of these things. Hmm. I'm going to second guess maybe some of the things you say, but when I was over at NYU, because they weren't opening up a record to see all of this stuff, it was often um, this sort of confusion as to why, you know, I wasn't presenting as, sort of stuff, but it doesn't change. I, I don't think there's an actual, there's no clinical diagnosis that I'm aware of for this person is withdrawing from a huge cocktail of drugs. And it's not necessarily a mental illness, but it, it's almost like, like an exorcism of sorts. Um, there's no diagnosis for that. And there's no way to really put words on that. And to be honest, we can describe what that feels like, but I don't know that half the doctors or more that we see are really aware of, of the harm that being just completely soaked in these drugs for any amount of time can do. Yeah, no, only, only going through it can you really understand it. 
I mean, I, I met a, I met a psychiatrist several years ago that had been at the University of Michigan. Now he's at Vanderbilt. And I told him that I'd been harmed coming off of being prescribed Zoloft. And he, and he looks at me, and this is a psychiatrist, like top tier university trained and teaching psychiatrist. And he, he says, oh, they got you too, huh? Oh. And it, was, it, was, it was that moment where I was just like, seriously? This doctor now he no longer prescribes because because they they he they placed him on a uh, on Zoloft when he was going through a divorce and and so it was he found himself trapped on the drug too it took him six months a year to get off of it and he he said it was one of the worst times of his life you know I can see the incentive to not publicize this and to for doctors to push against it but I think. Honestly, that I mean, I know that I am lucky to have made it through that. And it wasn't for, you know, I fought really hard and I was very assertive. And it still took me a really long time to fix my situation. I've seen all the stuff flying around about veteran suicide and suicide rates going up actually. And then when you taking into account, yay, well, are they on a cocktail of meds being held in the, you know, holding pattern also known as purgatory of drugs. There's a lot to look at here. And, um, like the actual over under of how much are these drugs helping or are they, or are they helping at all? Exactly. Um, you know, my understanding was, and I tell people this too, look, if you're getting out now, you might have a little more luck. You might, and I don't know exactly, but there was a time when I was on active duty and I was having some trouble with the vision and my digestion was all weird. This was all physical stuff from head injury. They had been very adamant that maybe I should stop complaining so much because it made me look like a hypochondriac and that, you know, back then, like you had to bottle all that inside and then on your exit physical, try to explain all this stuff. And then it would just be like, okay, like little miss, you have all these different complaints. You have, clearly you have PTSD and fibromyalgia or whatever it was they said I had. Um, but you know, I, I do think that for a time and, and this might still be true that they were overwhelmed with people who had issues who hadn't been allowed to talk about them on active duty. And now they're getting out and they're like, I need to like be compensated or figure out what's wrong with me. And a lot of times I, I think that there was a lot of PTSD and I think there was a lot of depression and I think there were a lot of brain injuries that went unnoticed or un, or mis, un or misdiagnosed. But this idea that people were coming out with great frequency and just getting put on meds, even if it was for the purpose of, okay, maybe this will simmer down the situation while we figure out what to do. But then those people, a lot of them, myself included, were sent out into the world and I could still be on that same cocktail of four drugs back from 2008, 2009 era that I was put on back then. Like, I don't think anybody would have stepped in by now and said, are you sure that's what you want to be doing? And that's what worries me because as we both know, these can be sort of numbing and leave an incredibly empty feeling inside. And if you don't have a therapist you're talking to or a super strong support system or watchful eyes on you even, I can see that that is where people are slipping away. You called it purgatory. Can you can you talk more about that? 
I've used that word several times when I discuss yeah. my saga, but yeah. I would say what I was referring to when I just said purgatory was, you know, this insistence that something isn't right and being put on drugs and being flipped, flopped to other drugs, but in the same class, you know, from uh, Prozac to Welbutrin to, to Zoloft and, you know, just doing that dance um, and being stuck there. And the more you insist things are wrong, the more the urgency seemingly to raise your dosage or add something else to the mix. And that is a, I mean, that's a hellish place to be, but because of the numbing effects of these drugs, it could also be a very numb, emotionless, um, empty place to be. And that's why I use the word purgatory because it, that's what I felt like I was in. And without having, um, you know, people to really advocate for you or back you up when you say, I don't think this is right. I mean, that's the infinite loneliness right there. And you can be surrounded by a bunch of people. And that is, it is, it's purgatory. Well, you don't sound like you're just going to lay down and have taken this on the chin (laughs) and say, Hey, thanks a lot. (laughs) I lost a decade. Have it. it. It's, it's all good. Thanks, bro. Right. I don't, I don't right. get that vibe from you here. So, what does it sound like? You're. No. It sounds like you. Like, wh- where are you in your recoveries? In all, uh, how many drugs did they have you on in total? Do you remember? I psych psychiatric meds, something. But we're mm-hmm. talking uppers, downers, the the uh, mood stabilizers, benzos, and SSRIs. I, essentially, and that's not me even counting sleep meds, uh, muscle relaxants, and and things of that nature. Um, so, I my I think it's like thirteen. It could be it could be several more than that. It could be twelve, um, and. I, I saw the other day when I was trying to look at 176 times um, and some of those were, you know, nasal spray, but still that this is an incredible, incredible number uh, for having gone and seen a doctor and been prescribed a drug uh, for someone who grew up with, with not a single medical issue. So you it went is, from this gigantic cocktail to right. what gigantic seems like cocktail. a pretty amazing trajectory right now. I, I'm, I'm thankful that I continued to pivot towards things that interested me even uh, during the dark times because I did set myself up for, uh, you know, I, am a, I went to Columbia. I have a journalism master's. Uh, it has been very difficult for me to think in a linear fashion, but I am very opinionated. So I've found um, a, lot of, a lot of success in my travel writing and culinary writing. But, and a big but here, I knew while I was going through all of this that, and it wasn't me being uh, egocentric or self-centered or anything, but I knew I ways to articulate it because I didn't fully understand what was really happening with me. But it was, you know, from within my, that purgatory I spoke of, I was well aware that there was a really big thing happening that I would be able to use 
as a tool later to help others. And then gradually I learned about this word advocacy. And these were things that didn't occur to me ever while I was in it, if you know what I mean. Um, These were... I thought I invented this idea of taking what had happened to me and someday using it to help other people, assuming there were other people that were in my situation, which I think we now know is probably a number millions. much greater than either of us care to think it's about. Millions. Or, or, yeah, no, it's millions. And, it, and it's not just about veterans, it's, it's societal. Um, and so I... I'll be honest, it was about a year and a half ago, I was like, the silver, the light at the end of the tunnel, the silver lining, all of these uh, cliche things is advocacy. And I really didn't know what that meant or have the uh, wherewithal to do any sort of advocacy except for sort of respond to questions, Um, respond to, hey, you had a brain injury, et cetera, et cetera. And I'll tell you, it's, the logical, because I did have multiple TBIs and I did rehab them. Um, and from that standpoint, the real difference to be made uh, by me and given what I've been through particularly is not just talking about self-advocacy and, hey, if you have a head injury, get it fixed. It's being open about the, the, all the, me- the mental health diagnoses. It's being open and honest about all of the psych meds I was put on. Um, and that does mean admitting that I didn't know any better. I did take them. I did, you know, my big strength move was saying, put me on something different, not take me off of these completely. And it took me a really long time to figure that out, but it's better than not figuring it out. And so advocacy to me, um, you know, I, I went down uh, to D.C. in June for this amazing, I love the high ground veterans advocacy and learned a little bit more about what advocacy truly looks like. Because it's not posting a photo on Instagram and saying, hey, this happened. It's, it's getting underneath of the why and making fundamental change that affects hundreds, thousands, millions of people. Not, um, not just sort of standing there and shouting my story, but it's taken a really long time for me to understand, you know, that how broad these issues are. And then I think about it, like if this had just only been me or I had a singular rare disease that it took so long to uncover, that would be one thing. But this is, this is not, this is something that is affecting, I'm sure there's a number to this, like one out of 15 people or something uh, of, of that, of that monument. It's just, I can't even imagine what, what really the impact of, of this can be. Um, so advocacy to me also looks like talking about these really unsavory things that happened in the hopes that it doesn't happen to other people. And, you know, I have only been completely off the SSRIs for less than six months now. I want to help as many people as I can. Um, and you know, there's this following my passions has been, you know, I think what kept me going through a lot of this, you know, my outdoor stuff, athletic stuff, my culinary and travel adventures, these sort of things that I've, I've done that look really cool, but are also a huge uh, part of my adaptation to my, my bigger issues. But that's passion. And when we talk about 
saving lives. And we talk about knowing how much I had to put in to come out this other end. That's mission. And mission um, is a powerful thing. And that mission gives purpose. And it gives much more purpose than a passion can give. And so there's, there's no sort of Yay, I figured it out and tying a bow and going on my merry way here. There's work to be done. I love it. Absolutely love it. I I, I think you you raise a really great point that there's a difference between purpose and mission and that purpose is something that gets you out of bed every morning to go do something. Mission is the thing that keeps you from going to bed the night before anyhow and keeps you fighting throughout the night. Mission is that thing that that is unrelenting and that you never take your thumb off of the issue until it is resolved. And I, I just, I love that you pointed that out and, and brought that up and, and explained mission because I think that's something that you and I are both on and it's going to be a pleasure working with you um, and following down this path. I agree. And it is interesting and heartwarming. And it just, the world is a funny place to know. I was probably bouncing that job and in somehow in the course of our first conversation ever had openly mentioned the medications I was on. And then to see you at the VA hospital, but then to have circled back uh, with each other and not just friends, but sharing in a mission, but having experienced a similar thing when neither of us have found many people, trust me, they're out there, but a lot of them just don't know. Yeah. No, we both did a really good job of hiding our issues for years. Like no one really knew what was actually going on with us from externally. Everybody saw us as uh, being leaders in the veterans community, uh, being incredibly successful um, with everything that we have done and having no clue the turmoil that was going on underneath. Yes. And I, it's hard for me to choose my words here because this is a difficult topic, but I know what it looks like from the outside. And I know what it looks like to have, you know, been on TV a lot and been on magazine covers and always smiles for photos and, and all of this stuff. And it, it's not fake. That was that was adapting the best I could and working yeah. with what I had. But it is so far from representative of what I was going through. And trust me, like we, I, I'm not the only one like that. And it, it's representative of this idea that there are many people out there smiling and pushing through and acting like everything is fine. And I know when I was that person who was uh, sort of in my purgatory, trying to make everything work, making it look like things were okay so that I, I would still be able to work and things like that. You could have almost come right up to me and said, hey, dude, this is what you need. And it would have depended on the delivery, but I might not have listened because I didn't fully understand the situation I was in. And talking mm-hmm. about this issue and just getting that this information out there floating around, making it more public knowledge, this idea that there are people out there, high-achieving humans who were knocked down by drugs is 
it raises awareness and it's the best way to start saturating the air with, with what I'm seeing and knowing in my heart to be true. And, um, it's, it's awareness and it's advocacy and that, what is my, what is my light at the end of the tunnel? It was this. So it's exciting to be breaking into this, uh, with a lot more, a lot more stability. Well, Amanda, I can't thank you enough for, for joining us here. Is, is there anything else you'd like to share? I mean, I, I honestly, I don't think this is going to be the last time we're going to have you here. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I plan to have an update uh, in the not so distant future. So, um, but is there anything else you'd like to share with, with the audience? Uh, the only thing I would share is a simple message of hope in the event that anyone who needs to hear this is listening and going through something similar is to advocate for yourself and never stop believing that it is better on the other side because it truly is. And it, it does sound like hogwash because I, I was that person on the floor staring at my wrist, screaming, why, why, why can't I figure this out? And I remember it, it, it seared into my brain that that was me on a certain day. Um, and I can even name the day because that was the lowest of the low and these sort of ideations I had it was because I didn't know and fully understand what my situation was and didn't also didn't know that there, when I figured it out, I was going to be able to find help and people, maybe not a lot so far, but people who had been through something similar. So the message would just be not to give up hope. And that sounds a bit cliche, but I sit here right now talking to you because I didn't give up hope. Well, I can't think of a better way to end this. So I'm not going to say this is goodbye, but we'll say to this is next time. Uh, so Amanda, thank you again for joining us here with Madden America. Thanks, Derek. Um, to our audience, to our listeners, thanks for joining. Uh, we're proud to have you as part of our adventure here. And until next time, look forward to talking to you again soon with Madden America veterans. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.